The hour grows weirder. The black sun hangs in a cloudless sky over cursed Carcosa. Like our ancestors before us, we turn our erect antenna to the sky and embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome to episode two of Embrace the Void, the show for sentient beings seeking to survive their senseless surroundings. I'm Aaron. And I'm GW. In today's episode, we discuss how to stop worrying and love the void. To start us off, we'll get to know Aaron a bit, since last time we had a chance to hear a bit of who I am. So, Aaron, uh, let's start it off and just ask, what do you do for a living? Or avoid living? <laughs> um, I do a couple of things. I All of it tends to boil down to teaching. I would say that's my main life activity. Uh, I teach philosophy at a college uh, near New York City, and I teach uh, Tai Chi around New York City, and I teach lighting and theater uh, at a summer camp up in Connecticut, Um, and I also do lighting uh, off-Broadway. So, yeah, that last one pays the bills and everything else is for fun. (laughs) Just doing philosophy as as a hobby, I guess. I mean... It's it's entertaining for me. It keeps me busy. It's more fun than than other things. Well, that's good. That's good. So let me ask you this: uh, What's your favorite part of the void? Um, I think you know my favorite part of the void is is the void's favorite part of the void because I love the void, and so it would have to be irony because uh, the only way to really know that the void loves us is that feeling of a moment constructed in such a way that a conscious being and only a sufficiently complex conscious being can appreciate the absurdity of that moment. Oh, that's really, that's where the good stuff is. That's the, that's the marrow, you know, when you you crack (laughs) it open, the good tasty marrow at the center. That's the really weirdness that you scrape it out and spread it on bread. So good. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So then going the opposite direction, what would you change about the void? That's a tougher one um, because I love it so dearly. I guess if I could change anything, um, you know, I think giving people the direct ability to perceive the inner world of other people. If we tomorrow invented a machine in which you could put on virtual reality goggles and actually see what it's like in my head and feel what it's like in my world. Isn't that what Timothy McVeigh tried to do? Did he? Well, he was cutting open like, animals, right? Was he the one that was cutting open oh, animals? I, I don't, I do not know that. I feel like my my background on um, I could be wrong. Sociopaths or maybe, is failing me. Maybe I'm just um, thinking of uh, the guy from Silence, uh, Silence of the Lambs. Right, and there's also uh, Zachary Quinto from Heroes, right? Who like to bash people's heads open and then stare into their heads and understand something. That's true. Um, That's true. But, but yeah, you know, something along like. Because I think, you know, one of the major problems of the void is empathy and understanding that just because we are trapped in our own little heads and we can't feel what other people are feeling very well, we end up doing horrible things. So Yeah. I want to ask you about empathy because there was a, a, a podcast uh, episode um, 
a while uh-huh. ago where there was a lot of discussion about the word empathy and a bit Sorry. of of uh, um, what there wasn't like a coherent consensus about the term itself. So when you say empathy, what do you mean? So I mean, yeah, I saw I saw that same and listened to the same podcast and saw the debate. Um, to me, empathy is the ability to. Um, vividly put yourself into another person's perspective and experience as best you can something relevantly similar to what they're experiencing. So when I see you experiencing pain, my ability to feel pain or to have a sufficiently vivid understanding of your experience of pain, that it is real for me. So one one last follow-up on that is, is it possible for uh, someone to have empathy for someone that's experiencing something I could never. So like, for example, like, could I have empathy for a woman who's, who's pregnant? Right. Or would it just be, would it just be sympathy in that case, which is or compassion, very, right? Yeah. The, the ability to care about someone, but not understand their experience. I, I don't know because I mean, I, I spend my life trying to be a feminist, um, which means I spend my life trying to empathize with a, a perspective that I can never directly experience. Um, and I think it's doable with a lot of humility and a lot of work and a lot of listening um, because fundamentally our experiences have relevant similarities. We understand the idea of unfairness or of being shut out of a situation. We all understand why that's not okay. So being able to apply that understanding to you know situations that I haven't experienced directly isn't impossible for me. It just takes some work. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. Um, it's I've gotten some pushback in the past of, you know, people will say, well, you just don't understand, which uh, I think is a valid uh, point uh, in some circumstances. But uh, I think that it takes extra effort in some cases to try to really empathize with someone, while in other cases, uh, if you ha- have had similar experiences, it's a lot easier to empathize. And I think sometimes people... Sure. Uh, have trouble with understanding that, that you don't necessarily need to have the exact experience uh, to be able to empathize with someone else. Yeah, I think the the care, thing you have to be careful about in that situation is just not becoming presumptuous and letting your, your own projection fallacies become the thing you're empathizing with instead of really being open to listening to what the person's experience has been and trying to find relevant similarities in your experience and trying to imagine what it would be like to be in that experience as best you can without leading to you like silencing what the other person has actually experienced or something like that. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think it's like, uh, you know, mm-hmm. if you've heard similar stories from multiple people, it's a, I think it then becomes a bit easier to empathize with an, an, a specific person's story. Right. Yeah. Sure. So, all right. So, you said you're a philosopher. So, let me ask mm-hmm. you this. Uh, uh, who's your, fa- your favorite philosopher and who's your least favorite? Okay. Well, my least favorite, I'm going to give you some names that are not like the the mainstream folks, you know. Sure. I'm not going to throw out popular names like Socrates and Plato, like all the posers. Um, <laughs> I think my least favorite is is uh, A.J. Ayer, who is a uh, 1900s, early 1900s to mid-1900s um, philosopher. He's famous for, famous for uh, 
things like logical positivism, um, which is What's the that? idea. So logical positivism is a theory that's centered around ver the verificationist principle, which is actually close to what it sounds like, which is the idea that anything that's true has to be verifiable. So, um, for example, you see uh, in psychology the idea that because we can't look inside of a person's actual head, that problem I was just describing a second ago. Sure, sure. Um, you get behavioralism, the the psychology that says we're not going to care at all about inner thoughts or worlds or anything. We're just going to focus on the external behavior that we can experience and alter via reprogramming, basically. Oh, okay. Um, and so and is do you disagree with that and that's why you don't like yes. him? Or? Yes. I, I disagree with it and it's a defunct theory. It's self-defeating, as some people have pointed out, because – the the theory says you should only only statements that are verifiable are true, okay? Right. So a statement for it to have truth value, being true or false, it has to be verifiable. But that claim itself, only true, you know, only verifiable claims are true or false, is not itself verifiable in any way, and so it itself is it can't have truth value. So it's a self defeating it's theory. A, it's a cyclical problem. Yeah, it cuts itself down. It falls into the class of theories that it claims are not truth conditional. Gotcha. So then, uh, so then, who's your favorite, or, or do you still have a list of ones you hate? <laughs> oh no, I was just gonna. The other reason I don't like Ayers is that he's an anti-realist when it comes to morality. And mm. despite the fact that I don't believe in persons or free will or moral responsibility, I do. I am a moral realist. I believe that morality is as real as physics or anything like that. Whereas he believed that morality was just statements of personal preference. And I think he was just very, very wrong about that. Uh, right. So not only was he wrong, but he was wrong in ways that I disagree with and don't like. So that's why I didn't like him. Uh, <laughs> whereas I love uh, Spinoza, who is a Dutch Jew philosopher. I went with a Jew just, to, <laughs> just for funsies. Um, he's a 1600s Dutch philosopher. He lived in Amsterdam for a while. So that's first point in his favor right there. Uh, he's a lifetime smoker. Um, what? When was he alive, or is he still he alive? 16, he was in the 1600s, and he died young of um, not young, but he died of uh, lung disease. Basically, he uh, to make to make a living while he was doing his philosophy, he ground lenses, like the lenses you'd use in microscopes and things oh. like that. So he was using math to grind out effective lenses during the uh, beginnings of the scientific revolution. Oh wow! So. He was a baller is what I'm saying. Um, and he was such a baller that when he wrote his philosophies, which were blasphemous by modern standards, he was basically, he said he made claims about God not having free will and not being a person in the way that um, modern Judaism and Christianity of the time believe that God is very clearly a person. I, f I um, feel like almost all of the great people throughout history uh, uh, were, were hated in their time period. Sure. I mean, it's a good sign, certainly. Right. Um, if people so, hate you, you're on the right track. Yeah. So Spinoza actually got excommunicated. He was kicked out of his um, his Jew tribe uh, <laughs> and was forced to go live in Jew exile um, because he claimed that Jew God had no free will. Right. Um, and so, obviously, I love him desperately. Um, He's, a, he's also a great example of, he was one of the first people that people pointed to as like, well, if atheists can't have morality, what the hell's going on with Spinoza? He lives a, a you know, con 
perfect ethical life where he lives in you know controlled poverty and only makes enough in order to pay for his basic gruel and he's so virtuous and stuff but he doesn't believe in the right kind of god <laughs> yeah yeah no. that's that's been the lifelong human argument uh, yeah. uh my god is better than your god my god can beat up your god yeah so he's my hero he's one of my heroes you know, Socrates, fair. hume there's lots of them but like Spinoza mm-hmm. should get more credit fair enough um, all right, let me ask you this. How much I've noticed on Facebook you engage in a lot of conversation with folks, and yeah. uh, uh, I think it's fair to say that most philosophers, including yourself, uh, really, really like arguing. So I'm curious to know, like how much how much do you love arguing? Sure. I don't I mean, like, and it depends on what you mean by arguing, right? I, um, I distinguish between sort of rigorous argument and the like shouty, fighty kind of sense. Yeah, I definitely and then, like dialogue yeah yeah i definitely mean like dialogue like like someone presents uh so uh, i love dialogue with all my heart and soul it's the only thing i love as much as the void and my wife um (laughs) i can engage in dialogue on on any idea almost any idea for pretty much any length of time which is the only thing i can engage on for long periods of time when it comes to conversation because as an introvert i don't really like small talk um, Fair. but if, if our small talk turns into a talk about a particular idea or philosophy, we could, we could do this forever. Um, Interesting. I, yeah. And, 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 you know, part of that is just a visceral pleasure. Like, uh, and in, in time we will come to discover that I believe that I do things because they feel good. And I, I think it feels good to share understanding with other conscious beings, even though we have all these limitations that prevent that shared understanding. Yeah. So have you, uh, um, in past arguments that you've had, uh, is there is there a memorable one that you can think of where someone changed your mind? Uh, yeah, there are lots of times because I've been wrong a substantial number of times. Um, the first one that comes to mind is um, a debate, an argument between my wife, Lulu, uh, Louisa Lyons, and myself about The Daily Show and whether The Daily Show was sexist. And I was super wrong. Um, and I was wrong because I loved The Daily Show and I wanted it to be the perfect bastion of liberalism that I needed in that time and place. Um, and she very rightly pointed out that um, the show does not bring on enough female correspondence and does not bring on enough female guests, especially was the issue. There'd be whole weeks where there wasn't a single female guest. Uh, and I fought her on it for a while because I didn't want to think that way about something that I enjoyed that much. And eventually it was like, I had to concede that she was totally right. It was a huge problem. And it got better by the end of the show, but there was definitely a, some time there where it just was lacking in females. It's, it's interesting. I've, uh, uh, I got into a really big argument with an ex-girlfriend of mine. Um, not while we were together. It was after we'd separated. Um, but we uh, um, still kept in contact. We're still, to this day, we're still friends. Uh, mm-hmm. And I had... An experience. Actually, you you were privy to to this uh, uh, mm-hmm. at the camp that we worked at. Um, <laughs> the woman who shall not be named, who tried to friend request me recently, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> which was hilarious. I was accused of basically being a misogynist, or or at least the uh-huh. the group that I was supervising. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the accusation was that she was not quote unquote one of the boys, uh, and so I was talking with my ex girlfriend about this and. Um, we were talking about uh, misogyny and workplace and things like that. 
Mm-hmm. And I was asking her if it's possible, not in all cases, in very rare cases, is it possible that sometimes people, you know, pull the race card or people pull the, the misogyny card when uh, that's actually not the case? Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. She got really upset with me, and um, I just remember in that specific instance, uh, uh, there were issues with her not turning her work in, not doing things on time, and we sat down with with her and my supervisor to sort of go over the issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and she got backed into a corner and pulled that card, and it was really difficult from my perspective of, of what to do. So my qu- my question is in in relation to the conversation you had, you had with Lou about the Daily Show is. Sure. Is at what point? At, this is a difficult question to ask, right? At what right. point have has a group or an organization or or whatever reached a point where an ism has been surpassed and people are being uh, asked onto a show or asked into the group purely on on their merits, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not an ism. Does that make sense? Like that's a, I'm sort of sure. The question and I think terrible. my answer is I, I don't know of a situation or have not experienced a situation ever in which purely on their merits is the way anything works. Um, so I don't know. Um, it seems like in my experience, everyone is count is taking into account a variety of factors in all of these situations, and there's no way. I mean, like. You can do, you know, nameless grading or nameless casting or things like that to try to reduce biases to some extent and also to try to reduce, you know, active consideration of these things that isn't biased but is part of the consideration. Um, But I think the better thing to do is just be conscious of those factors and include them consciously and and deal with the issues and, and... once once we reach a point of equality in theory, it would be easier for, you know, those factors to become less significant. Yeah. The only other thing I'll say about this topic is it reminds me of uh, this other podcast that I listen to. It's a tech podcast. They talk about the tech industry a lot. And uh, there's been a lot of uh, talks and conversations about uh, the... A really small number of women who are programmers or developers mm-hmm. um, or work in, in tech. And uh, uh, the numbers have been really low for a while. And mostly what's happening is in most of these really high-end places, I'm talking Googles, you know, the Facebooks, the, the really high-end uh, sure. business places, uh, for people that interview for like programming positions, they take tests. They have to like they have to do these really rigorous sort of tests. And um, you know, it's like only recently was a woman uh, a woman who went through Navy SEAL training, and mm-hmm. so there's now like the first female Navy SEAL uh, uh, Navy SEAL. So I uh, the thing that they started doing that a lot of these big industries is they started uh, funding uh, high schools as well as colleges to try to promote. Uh, women uh, um, right. in, in the educational Stem. world. And I wonder, mm-hmm. like, A, is that a good thing? Absolutely. No question about it. But B, like, I also wonder, like, how much responsibility is it on that industry, on those companies to do that? And and I'm not I'm not suggesting that they shouldn't. Absolutely. Like, mm-hmm. uh, uh, not at all. But I, I'm, I'm sort of curious to know, like... I think it's in their best interest to do so. Assuming that Google wants to live for 20 years, right? So 20 years from now, Google's still Googling. Right. <laughs> um, 20 years from now, Googling. young women will be 
you know, entering, continuing to enter the the careers of all in all these situations. And, and I think this is another important thing I wanted to point out. Um, it's not about merit versus other things. It's about balancing the other things so that equal merit is given equal consideration. So can, can you go into what that means a little more? Yeah. So the idea that um, at every step along the way, um, equal capacity should be treated with equal credit. So if you really want a meritocracy, you want a system that respects equal capacity for young women who show aptitudes in math and other STEM um, situations that then leads to more uh, incentivizing of them to develop those skills, to pursue those careers all the way down the line. Um, right. A lot of, you know, it's it's an easy sort of talking point to get into the idea that things like affirmative action are about um, tipping the scales of merit so that less meritous individuals from these groups can then get these positions. But the reality is the members of these groups are equally meritous. Their merit is just not given equal weight because of other factors. And, you know, you were talking about Google having these people having to take tests. I don't know enough of the details of those tests off the top of my head to know how they work, but from from everything I understand, there's nothing that suggests that women are less capable in any of these things, or or in fact, Absolutely. probably more capable in a lot of these things. And so, any differences you're seeing are highly likely to be cultural and highly likely to be easily corrected with this kind of influencing of of uh, interests. And I don't think any of it um, can will, will necessarily lead to you know, uh, better programmers losing gigs to less good programmers or something like that. Um, and I also think that, you know, as you allow for a balancing out of genders in these kind of industries, the, the problematic parts of people's gender, which is, you know, how other people react to it oftentimes, like, uh, you know, a, a good uh, female CEO can be a very good female CEO, but she's always facing an uphill grind of right. men who just react poorly, more poorly to a female CEO than a male CEO. Right. And like over the course of a career, that makes one less successful no matter how good you are. Right. You can't be perfect. Um, so, you know, when I watch stuff like Silicon Valley, which I love as a show, even though it is, you know, problematic and also good at pointing out the the gender inequality problems of that environment, like I think the clear reoccurring message is if we all just stop thinking for, you know, if we if we can work ourselves out of this mindset of viewing someone's work and and skills differently because of the casing that it comes in, then, you know, everything will balance out some more. Yeah, that's fair. You know, that, that got, sorry, that got a little utopian at the end, right? <laughs> Obviously, humans are never going to get there. But like any amount of incremental improvement in the like, you know, like again, like in wealth inequality, right? We're never going to get perfect wealth equality. That's a silly thing to shoot for. Well, it but also we depends on like like what what equ like wealth equality means. Like if it means like Star Trek world and there's no money, I'm all aboard. If it means like uh, communism, then I'm totally not on board. Right. And what it really, you know, like I, I use it in the Rawlsian sense of like, uh, if everyone, you know, if the system is benefiting people, it needs to benefit everyone. So if there's wealth inequality, it can't be a sort of wealth inequality where certain people fall below their current baseline. 
so everyone you know needs to rise all sh- all ships need to rise at least if you're going to have inequality and if we that we don't see that like we don't in our society right now then we need to address that Great. So I I feel like I really know you. I, I feel like I know the true Aaron, the true void Aaron. In the biblical sense, right? In the biblical sense, mm-hmm. yes. Biblical uh, sense. Um, <laughs> uh, so we're going to start at this new segment called Void Philosophy. So what is, uh, Aaron, can you tell us what this segment is? Yeah, I mean, so this is philosophy for uh, how we learn to stop worrying and love the void, basically. Um, it's about, you know, a bunch of different, pulling together a bunch of different perspectives, all the things that I've, um, uh, enjoyed in my times as a philosopher. And then hopefully new stuff that we can bring in as we go along and, uh, trying to just give people a little bit to a little, little crag to cling to as they try not to just fall into the abyss. That sounds great. So the first thing you want to talk about is acceptance. So, uh, talk yeah. to us, talk to us about that. <clears throat> Yeah, so acceptance, or another good term is um, non-attachment. That's sort of the Eastern flip side of this. Um, So it's the idea of letting go of the resistance to what is, would be, I think, the most basic way to put it. Ah, and what is. Yeah, so what is is what is, whatever (laughs) the real situation is. You know, so for example... We know that we live in the void, right? The evidence is overwhelming. Donald Trump is president. That's a fact of the matter, right? So if your happiness, if your your well-being is predicated on not living in the void, then you're never going to be happy because you live in the void. So the first thing, for example, is to just accept I live in the void. Right. It's it's like one of those stages of grief. I can never remember them. Right. The last so one the is last acceptance, stage. right? Right, right. And even, you know, those are non-sequential. But yes, generally speaking, people tend to reserve acceptance for the end. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it's also a basic idea in Buddhism and, and Hinduism and, and a variety of Eastern philosophies and some of the Western ones like um, Stoicism, where the more... The, the the key to a good life is not to take the world and fix it so that it fits what you want. It's to recognize that you're not going to be able to do exactly that and then let go of your attachment to needing things to be a certain way. And in doing so, you achieve happiness. Okay, so I want to push push back on that just a little sure. bit. I'm, As everyone wants to, always. Yeah, yeah well, like, because the first thing that comes into mind is, is what about, you know, um, oppressed groups or... Yeah, uh, totally. How do you, what about the suffering people? And this is like, this is a real tension. So, right. so the, the reality is, in morality, there are dynamic tensions between competing needs, and there are not perfect resolutions to those competing needs. And so, one example is like forgiveness or mercy versus justice. Um, the more justice you have, the less forgiveness or mercy you have and vice versa. And so we have to find what we find to be a good balance between the competing need to have enough justice and the competing need to, to be merciful and, and not hold on to our addiction to justice or something like that. Um, so another one is acceptance versus doing stuff, right? Like, we live in this world. We're attached to people. I was just talking about the empathizing with suffering of other beings. I, I do believe that we have a call to action and a moral obligation to act, while at the same time accepting that 
our actions may reduce some amount of suffering, but they're not going to eliminate the void. So I understand. So, so I think I get it. Let, let mm-hmm. me try to rephrase and tell me if I'm sure. off base. Uh, so what you're saying is that we accept, um, like let's say every morning there's someone who's peeing in people's cornflakes across the country, right? Sure. Everyone's cornflakes are getting peed in. And right. I, I can accept that that's a fact and I can try, like, if there's, like, a handful of people, I can maybe stop one person who's peeing in a bunch of people's cornflakes. Right. That doesn't mean it's going to stop all of them. Uh, but I shouldn't feel dissuaded from trying to stop that one person who's doing it to a couple of people. Like, is that is that roughly it? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's more, it's so it's less about what you do to fix the cornflake peer and more about how you feel about the fact that you have to eat a bacon, egg and cheese sandwich instead of cornflakes, even though you really like cornflakes. So if you're one of those Americans who just loves cornflakes and you're stuck in this crippling fear of eating, you know, mitterated upon cornflakes, um, what I'm recommending is that you let go of the fact that you can't have your cornflakes right now. Until such time as things change. So the advantage of my view is that everything changes. Eventually you hit a point at which, you know, you're you're once again able to eat your cornflakes or you've moved on and accepted that you no longer get to eat cornflakes. Well, so then let's do something a bit more topical, right? Sure. Like we, uh, uh, um, women have been able to get abortions in this country uh, in in a lot of circumstances. And mm-hmm. with the current administration, it's really possible that that gets reined in quite a bit. So, you know, what do you say to, to uh, um, uh, women out there who um, want their right to choose? Like, do, yeah, is like, I know you're not saying this, but it's almost like you're saying, like, uh, uh, we'll just, you know, sit down and, and take it, right? Which I know that's not what you're saying, but... Uh. Right, and this is this is the problem that anyone who comes and says, look, here's a psychological solution to suffering, is it's immediately met with, well, this sounds like what you're saying is just be, just, ex- you know, acceptance of what is, and this is and like totally reasonably like there's you know this is why this is a tricky subject is that in saying this it can certainly sound like what you're saying is sit down and shut up and just accept what is right um because in one sense it is saying accept what is it's sort of like so um uh let me give an example from stoicism so epictetus uh who was a roman slave who bought his own freedom and was in crippling pain his entire life because he was tortured when he was a slave. Mm -hmm. Um, He developed a version of Stoicism uh, that says, uh, you know, let go of um, need to try to control things that you can't control. Recognize that there are certain things in the world that you can't control. And we all have to admit on some level there are definitely things in the world we can't control. Whatever falls in that category except that you can't fix it. So, for example, he says, play the sport, whatever game you love, and play it as much as you love it, but don't let your quality of life be attached to whether you win or lose, because you don't get to decide ultimately if you win or lose. Right? So it's the the proto version of everyone has a good game no matter who wins. Interesting. Um, so similarly, you know, it's about acting without attachment to um, the consequences, and that's hard. 
Um, but I think it produces good results when people can actually manage to do it. It's, it's definitely tricky and it's an imperfect process, but it's better than, um, so it's sort of like I was saying with the void, you know, if, if your well-being is predicated on living in a society that's perfectly equal, if you're not going to be happy until the society is perfectly equal, then that's an admirable position to take, but you're going to die unhappy. Um, statistically, it seems very likely that we're not going to hit equality, perfect or good equality levels in the next 60 years or so. What we are going to do is get better. So if your quality of life can be attached to change and to the fact that whatever current state of horrible we're in is also going to pass at some point, then you can you can be happy while still being active. There's a balance that can be struck, just like the mercy-justice balance, where you can be forgiving of the mistakes of others while still also holding them accountable for their actions. All right, so let me, let me ask this then. So what you're saying is like uh, for someone that, you know, maybe is uh, a lawyer mm-hmm. uh, or someone that, uh, you know, works for the NAACP, what you're saying is like they should continue to, they should accept that racism is a real thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, And they should do what they can to change it, but they shouldn't expect that every court case that they try is going to change racism forever uh, 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 or ultimately. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, it, it gets very tricky. So like in Buddhism, they talk about grasping without attachment. So there's questions about whether this kind of. Um, non-attachment is livable. Like when I have a relationship with someone, I'm clearly attached to them, right? right? I'm gonna I'm gonna care about what happens to them. And this philosophy is an attempt to try to say care about them, but in such a way that when they inevitably die, as every single person inevitably will, don't be so attached. That, or, or, I don't know. It's, it's so hard. It's like it's it's saying love them fully, but accept that they will also be gone at some point and work your way into a place of acceptance where when that happens, you're okay with it and it doesn't destroy you. That's okay. That, you know, that makes a lot of sense. So I, let me uh, explain a theory that I have. So I'm in the, uh, I'm an atheist, which I believe, you know, that. Mm-hmm. sure. And I struggled with it for a while when I was younger and uh, uh, a lot of things sort of just came, like, slowly came to me and I started having more of an understanding of uh, the universe around me as much as I possibly could perceive it. And the uh, the thing that, that really sort of solidified it in my brain was, um, let's just pretend for a second you and I are we're prehistory, right? Pre-written word. And you sure. and I are, are leaders of, of groups or tribes or whatever. And we're trying to figure out like how like these fucking people just keep going around and killing people and they're stealing shit and they're raping everyone. Like mm-hmm. how the hell do I get them under control? Right. Uh, and we're like, oh, well, let me just create this, these set of rules and say there's a God and, and, and that's how we account for things. And that's how I lived for a while. And I was like, that's a terrible argument. And, the the thing that really helped me was I thought to myself, all right, every organism, single cell organism, all the way up to humans, uh, uh, we have self preservation, right? We all we all will fight to stay alive or to preserve mm-hmm. our offspring. Uh-huh. Uh, and and then I sort of asked myself the question, if if that's true, and 
I am a sentient being that is aware that I'm mortal, which means I will die and there's nothing I can do to stop it, then Mm -hmm. how do I cope with that? And it then led me to uh, my current sort of uh, philosophy that the, the thing that religions give human beings is this ability to be okay with the fact that they know they're going to die, but in their religious point of view, uh, depending on the religion, either they're going to not die, they're going to get reincarnated, or they go to another world um, like heaven or, right. you know, whatever else uh, um, uh, each denomination sort of believes in. What, you, yeah. what say you? So, yeah, that's that's great. I mean, and of course you want to say, you know, there are many reasons in which people adopt religious beliefs. One of those reasons, one of the main reasons, and this is um, comes especially in the Hindu tradition who spent thousands of years arguing with the Buddhist tradition, is they want to secure the idea of permanence rather than impermanence. So I, I keep throwing out this idea that everything changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I take that from from the Taoist view and from Buddhist views, which is the the, the idea that Everything is is literally impermanent. Everything is in a constant state of flux. Yourself, quote unquote, is really a a bundle of different um, qualities and experiences tied together in a tight little bundle, but not in such a way that there's anything permanent going on in there. And so the idea of the soul, of a permanent God, of a permanent afterlife, of an attachment to that that permanent... um, Brahman or whatever we call it, the all soul, um, are all attempts to uh, secure some permanence for the thing we are most attached to, which is our sense of self. So like you say, self-preservation is a really overwhelming uh, evolved quality for us. And as conscious beings, it becomes about preservation of our sense of identity and our sense of personhood and that sense of self that we want to persist beyond death, even though we have no reason to believe it does. Well, and 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 I think the death part is is the key point, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in, sure. in my mind, I don't think that early uh, humans knew or were aware that uh, uh, they were mortal, um, mm-hmm. or at least uh, not in the sense of like you know people getting getting killed or whatever, but that you can live and not get physically injured and and your life could end. Right, uh, and now we know that that that's an absolute fact that no one lives forever, uh, sure. and that's a difficult thing to sort of uh, uh, cope with. Yeah, and I think it'll be, you know, if if I worry about the time in which science actually solves the problem of death and what sort of existential crisis that will bring about, right. if for no other reason than all of our being is tied around the fact that we are, you know, um, this is Hegel. I don't remember. I'm not, it's good on the continentals. Um, beings unto death is the term that they use that the fact that we are always hurtling towards our own non-existence defines every moment and every aspect of our being. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I saw some article a little while ago, uh, that there's a current theory in quantum mechanics, uh, that's suggesting that consciousness exists after death. Yeah, I get worried about anything that uses quantum mechanics and consciousness in the same sentence. Mm-hmm. My, my woo-dar goes off very quickly. <laughs> woo Because there is a lot of woo that goes like something-something consciousness, something-something quantum physics, hand-waving free will. And I, <laughs> I, I, I don't... So, it's possible. I mean, 
I, I take the views I, I, this far in my life. I've taken the view that uh, death is the end, the one ending to a movie that no one gets to spoil for me ahead of time. No one's gonna ruin the plot twist after death. I get to go into it not knowing what happens next, and that's exciting to me. I think that's a great adventure, and I yeah. think anyone anyone who wants to take away that adventure is missing the the point of the end of the ride that is the roller coaster that is right. this existence. This sounds super morbid, but I've been fascinated about death only like not not mm-hmm. from a um, like I want to go and start like picking apart people's bodies or whatever. I'm fascinated with what, like wanting to know what happens. You know what I mean? Like sure. I'm someone who's who's always been really thirsty for knowledge, and that's you know the one answer that no one has, or you know, people <laughs> people think they have it, but. Uh, they don't know. They think, but they don't know, or they believe they have it, and they don't know. Sure, and there's no reason to really think that they they're right in believing that they know. I mean, no one has come back from it. Like, just like the reality is, nobody's like in a genuine sense has come back from any of it. And you know, I, I think I think it's you know, I, I think that it being exactly what people expect it to be is highly unlikely. So anyone who says, I think it's going to be this and that's the high likelihood, there seems like a problem there. I think the world is much weirder than anything that our imaginations are good at coming up with. And so when it comes to what happens after on the other side of that very black veil, I I don't think that our best guesses are going to even be very useful. Um, Interesting. Meanwhile, I think... We have a lot of good information about how to live a good, flourishing life in the void here and now and ways that one can improve their quality of life despite there being, you know, a rampant void crab infestation all around us. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I don't think tying it to the to permanence is the way to go. I think so. I think the moral of, of acceptance is, um, and we'll probably talk about this concept more in time, that everything is impermanent. And so... The root of suffering is being attached to things that will go away because everything goes away. And so... Except energy. Sure. It goes into other kinds of energy. Right. But um, the, the energy that's that's persisting as GW right now is going to turn into something else at some point, at which point I'll have to find a new co-host, which will be sad. Right. <laughs> um, Maybe I'll become a tree I'll probably get a robot co-host at that point. Let's be honest. Yeah. Um, so, so I have I have a really random question then. So, yeah. Have you since since uh, uh, this is sort of your way of thinking? Have you considered like what uh, what you want to do with your body once you're dead? Um, I have I have various sort of uh, amusing you know views of that. I'm I'm I've always been a big fan of what happens in Stranger in a Strange Land when people die. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a Robert Heinlein book uh, about a Martian, a, guy, a human who was raised on Mars and comes back and brings Martian knowledge to the world. It's very closely related to um, the movie Arrival that just didn't win Best Picture. Oh, God, that um, movie was so good. So good, right? So, like, all of the all of the language and mind-altering part of the language stuff is in Stranger in a Strange Land. Oh, it was just like, it's hands down the best movie I've ever seen. I have zero criticisms about that movie, which never happens. No, I mean, it's just so very, very good. Although, um, Get Out, have you seen that? No, I haven't. Oh my god, go see Get Out. Okay, I will have to check that out. Um, So, 
so yeah, so in Stranger in a Strange Land, they eat their dead, and they do it as a ceremony that involves um, uh, what they call grokking. This is where the word grok comes from. You ever heard that term? No, never. Grok is a pop culture term for understanding. It means deeply understanding is the short translation. Mm. Um, to fully understand, to, to grok fully is to like... It sounds right. like a Klingon word. Yeah, it's certainly, it's a very cheesy, um, you know, of its time sci-fi kind of term. Um, and the idea is that in, in consuming the body of the the departed, you savor all of your understanding of all of your experiences with them. So, uh, but Lou, my wife has told me that I'm absolutely not allowed to eat her when she dies <laughs> and she's certainly not going to eat me when I die. So the reality is it's probably going to be something like cremation. Interesting. I, I've been, I'm a firm believer in knowledge and education and that the truth shall set you free sort of uh, mindset. Uh-huh. And I, I put a lot of value in, uh, in educating in, in that, um, uh-huh. you know, the cornerstone of humanity is technology. And uh, with the, with technology getting as complicated as it is over the last thousand years, it's uh, uh, impossible for someone to not sort of l- learn a lot of things before they can do really almost anything. Um, and and so I've been thinking like, I'm probably going to like donate my body to, uh, not mm-hmm. just to science, but to like, uh, you know, um, doctors work on cadavers as to get better at it, to learn. Sure. And so I, I've been, I think that's where I've landed, that I want to do that. But like the other side of me wants to like donate all my organs and everything for, you know, someone else. Yeah. I mean, organ donation is a given. I think um, I would be happy to donate myself to science as an individual who's survived this far without eating vegetables. Right. Um, <laughs> which I don't do. And I, so I feel like, I, you know. You know, when I grew up and I was in nutrition classes, I didn't eat vegetables, and they told us, oh, you need to eat vegetables. They never followed it up with why. And so I think science could do a better job explaining what happens to the body that doesn't eat vegetables for its entire life. I'm curious <laughs> to see how those results would turn out. I would also love the uh, uh, biodegradable fungus suits. Have you seen those? Those are cool. No. Where you, where you turn into a big old fungus colony or you turn into a tree or whatnot. Yeah, I've seen the tree one where they, they sort of, cr- not cremate you, but they do something they've also got the, like... They've also got super fancy fungus ones where they specially, um, engin- you know, through... Um, uh, reproduction engineered fungus that specifically like to eat human flesh that are particularly good at breaking down human flesh. So how do I, how do I, Joe Schmo, sort of apply this uh, uh, acceptance in my daily mm-hmm. life? Yeah. So that's a that's sort of a big question. I think one that we'll want to work on over a couple of episodes. But I think a short answer is a good place to start. Um, what we're trying to zero in on is the reaction that happens after something that you don't want or have attachment to the opposite of happening. So like, you know, dropping your ice cream cone or something like that, right? Uh, It sucks that you've dropped your ice cream cone now, but the more that you cannot identify with the part of yourself that wants to take that anger and uh, uh, sadness and build it into a narrative about how your life is shit and like you're constantly having to deal with dropped ice cream cones. Right. Um, 
that's the key. So like from the healthy psychological flexibility perspective is you want to feel the sadness of losing that ice cream cone or, you know, the sadness of having to deal with the fact that we live in a fucked up world where people are horrible to each other. Um, and you don't want to ignore it, but you don't want to make your identity about it. You want to remember that you are not that that pain and you don't need to live it every single moment in order to also be honest about the fact that it's there. Right. So let me let me try to give you uh, an, an example that I've lived by for uh, at least half of my life. Um, mm-hmm. uh, when I drive and someone cuts me off, right. I don't get mad. Like I never like my mom is a huge road rage. My dad a little bit, but my mom like gets in like screams, flipping people off the whole nine yards. And right. I've always been like, someone cuts me off. I'm like, eh. Like as long as they didn't actually like cause an accident, then yeah. I I don't. Like it's just not worth the energy. Yeah. And what do you? Yeah. Is it? What is your justification? The not worth the energy thing. Yeah. It's like not worth a, the that's energy. A, that's a great justification. I mean, um, the Buddha says something along the lines of um, holding on to anger, or hate, and expecting the other person. To suffer is like drinking poison and expecting them to die. Right. Like your anger towards them cutting you off is not going to affect their life. It's going to affect your life. So from right. a purely pragmatic perspective, being angry is pointless and kind of and harmful. Um, exactly. So that's, that's the first way to do it. And then there's some other techniques that you know I think we should get to down the line, where it's like the reason I don't believe in free will. Part of it is that. Um, when you recognize that the person who cut you off did so because they have a bunch of problems and like they are being driven by forces beyond their control to act like douchebags. Right. Um, or maybe they just honestly didn't see you or they didn't honestly didn't see you or they're in a rush. They're in a life or death situation that you don't know about. There could be a bunch of legitimate reasons. There could be a bunch of illegitimate reasons, but whatever, whatever those reasons are like, uh, recognizing those reasons and not holding on to a sense of anger towards that person is still the best way that you yourself are going to flourish. Right. So that's 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 the non-attaching stuff. It's like, you know, and like my father who taught me all of this is like really good at letting go of this stuff. But like when he hits the, you know, the bridges of New York city, as soon as like, not only does his <laughs> accent get worse when he starts to cross the GW bridge, but like <laughs> My he bridge. really does start, he needs to curse at some people a little bit more. Right. He needs, yeah, your bridge. Exactly. Like he needs, he, he starts feeling it a little more, but then he like laughs it off and like, doesn't, doesn't become actually upset by it. And like, you can tell the difference between that and a person who, we all know the sort of person where you ask them, how was your day? And they can tell you every bad thing that happened to them. And right. they'll do it in order. And they need to do it because it tells you what their what their self is. Because their self is that story of pain. It's that story of attachment that I'm telling people they can do without. Yeah, and I also wonder if it's that, um, considering the history of human life, uh, mm-hmm. uh, it seems like... Through most of human history, most people have experienced uh, a, a harder, rough life, and I, right. I would quantify that as 
um, you know, people getting tortured, being in slavery, uh, <laughs> your parents getting killed when you're a little kid, um, being in physical pain, like all that sort of stuff. And that although we're in the worst of all possible timelines, well, not the worst of all, we're in a bad timeline. Even considering that. <laughs> it's like, open for debate how bad our timeline is. Yeah. <laughs> true, true. But I think like considering that, like living in the U.S. at least, it's still sure. pretty decent. Um Relative to like, you know, someone, uh, uh, you know, the people who are living in Ethiopia and like getting food is like one of the hardest right. things to do. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, let me let me, you know, like another legitimate criticism that I think you're angling towards of this position along with like the doesn't this make us inactive or passive towards, mm-hmm. you know, reality um, is is this a privileged philosophy? Is this a philosophy right. for people who are in a place of privilege? And I think that's a legitimate question, and I think it's one that we should totally explore further. Um, my initial response is, you know, I'm drawing from people like Epictetus, who certainly weren't in a privileged position. He was advocating for this stuff despite living in literal physical pain every single day of his life. Interesting. Even though I personally, like, Topic you know, for another show. Right. I've dealt with a bunch of shit, but I certainly have a lot of privilege and I've been very lucky in my life and have very few, you know, really no complaints of substantial sorts. And so I'm very concerned about the possibility that my own philosophy is bred of a position of not having to deal with these things. I do think that there are some reasonable claims to be made about how this position can be helpful for everyone and not just people in a place of privilege. And that it part of uh, part of this view is that once you let go of that attachment, you, the consequences of your behavior actually become closer to what you want them to be. So it's another sort of level of the paradox is that um, by letting go of the consequences, you paradoxically get better consequences. Right. I I wonder if if like all of this is linked to I remember a while ago seeing like a graph it was like a link between happiness and income and that uh-huh. as uh, it looked at it in a country sense and right. as wealth of of the countries has increased there's mm-hmm. been an indirect uh or an inverse relationship to the amount of happiness in that country. Yeah, and I, I, the last data that I saw was it's like up to a point you see a con, you see a correlation, and then you see a plateau, and then you see a drop off to some extent. Right. Um, where there is like a point, sort of a range of making enough to be happy, but not so much that you become uh, overly attached to that um, um, that kind of happiness. Right. Like I um, I sort of uh, m- mentor a lot of students, and one of the things I tell them is is that. You know, do you want, a, and this is something my mom basically raised me on, uh, do you want a job that's going to give you $200,000 a year and you don't really like that job at all, so you spend all of that money on yachts and vacations and all this other stuff to try to supplement your terrible, terrible life that you spend 40 hours plus a week doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, or do you get the job that's going to pay you a lot less, like 50000 a year, uh, but it doesn't feel like work and you love going in and you almost don't even need to take a vacation because you love what you do. Right? right. What's what's the difference in perspective of the way that you want to live your life? Yeah, and and 
so my philosophy on that is you can go into it with a plan and it's good to have a mindset about what my balance what what balance I'm shooting for but accept that the reality is you you might not hit that perfect balance um, right. and you might live a life that that isn't quite balanced that way but the more that you can be okay with the balance you do end up striking while continuing to try to strike the right balance um the better off you'll be absolutely uh and like it it you know there's a lot of re- legitimate responses and and you know ways that we have to sort of nuance this position to avoid collapsing it into nihilism or fatalism or that sort of thing and you know i i love to joke about nihilism and fatalism and i certainly have a more fatalistic view about the likelihood of good outcomes than a lot of people do but i my view is not that improvement is impossible i think we can look at you know legitimate social rights improvements that have actually happened and that those are good things um but at the same time we can also look at the fact that inequality is still at an all-time high despite those improvements and mm-hmm. issues like that and so we need to balance our happiness and attachment to things getting better with recognizing that things are also continuing and may may forever continue to be problematic until yeah. something substantial changes right and then they might be problematic in different ways so mm-hmm. you know i also you know it's my philosophy having lived a very short period of time in a very small place in a very first person perspective um i can be very wrong about a lot of things so that's a that's a, that's a disclaimer we should throw out early and often on this show yeah no i 100% agree like i i'm <laughs> happy to be wrong and because if i'm wrong and someone right. calls me on it then that means i get to learn something new right uh, and that's uh, which that's i my, love my darling socrates's line which is the best thing you can ever do for me is prove me wrong because that's a great it, line it helps me get better. It weeds out my garden of, of bad ideas so that good ideas can grow. That's a great. I love that. Oh, oh yeah. Because that's why Socrates is a baller. <laughs> um, I don't think anyone said that word since 96. Oh, man. There's going to be so many 90s words. I'm a child of the 90s. I'm going to be sweet dude and baller, and I'm not dude. letting it go. Dude. So hopefully something that we can start doing regularly is a listener question. Um, if you guys have any questions that you want to ask us, uh, ask me or ask Aaron, uh, email us at voidpod at gmail.com. So our first question comes from uh, Lou Lyons, who also does our uh, legalese sort of phrase. Um, <laughs> and, and Lou asks, what the fuck is a void crab? Right. That's an excellent question, darling. Um, so a void crab is uh, any crustaceous member of the genus Voidius. Uh, there are several species of both flying and flightless carapist species that fall under the general designation of void crab. Uh, so, for example, uh, my friend and void mount bitey is a member of the short-horned long-tooth subspecies, uh, hence the nickname. Uh, naturally, these creatures are native to the void and only tend to interact with humans when it comes time to lay their eggs. So, <laughs> if you see a void crab moving around, headed for you, and you don't want void crab eggs, you should cover your ears and you should shout, No, I don't want any eggs, please. <laughs> oh Most God. void crabs will move along. <laughs> 
it's like like my worst nightmare is a spider walking into my ear and laying eggs. Yeah. So be aware, right? Hands over the ears, no eggs, please. They're very respectful creatures. So um, that was a great question. Please, you know, keep them coming when we start referencing things that are too obscure for any human being other than um, psychotics. Uh, let us know, and we will describe them more thoroughly. Thanks for listening, everyone. Again, you can follow us on Facebook or join us in the void at patreon.com slash embrace the void. You can also email us at voidpod at gmail.com with any questions, or you want to yell at us for a privilege. But always remember, you are the void, and the void is you. Thank you.